Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome to Prophecy Today Weekend. Man, it's great to be back with you. Let me say welcome to our radio broadcasters. It's good to be back with you. Our radio partnering families, uh, the stations that carry us, and of course our uh, followers and those that listen on a weekly basis to our Prophecy Today weekend program. This is a program that examines current events in the light of God's prophetic word. We're continuing on that legacy that uh, for many years, as my father uh, produced and, and put together and thought through the process of bringing information, helping the body of Christ to understand where they are on God's timetable, the end times, the last days, what's taking place. Well, we're really happy to be with you this week. And I do want to thank you for, uh, maybe some of you don't know, I had my own bout uh, with COVID, eight days in intensive care, uh, a fight. And maybe someday I'll share that with you. I know that there's a lot of people out there right now, a lot of controversy as far as the vaccines and being vaccinated and unvaccinated. That's a program for another time. But uh, this week, we're going to start our program off again with our partners from around the world. And my brother, Rick and Ken Timmerman, they're going to be talking about 9-11, remembering some of the things from 9-11, and then where we are on the world scene and what's taking place today. Rick, great to be back with you. Well, thank you, Jimmy. It's good to hear your voice. Right now, we have with us our good friend and our geopolitical affairs expert, Ken Timmerman. Ken, how are you today? I'm doing great, Rick. How are you? Great, great. So today, as we all know, is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. One thing we're going to be asking of all of our guests and of you uh, as well is just your maybe your personal re- recollections of uh, September 11th, and then possibly if you could just talk about it on a world scale or a geopolitical scale, the legacy and aftermath of 9-11. Well, uh, on, on a personal level, Rick. I was working at home in my home office on the morning of September 11th, just outside of Washington, D.C. at the time, and got a call from my son in college after the first plane hit, said, you know, Dad, go look at the, turn on the TV. I went down and turned on the TV, then watched the second plane hit live, turned to my wife, and we both kind of said at the same time, we've got to go get the kids. So she ran out to get our two small children in uh, uh, elementary school, middle school, uh, managed to get off the roads before they were completely shut down a couple of hours later. And we were both thinking, you know, what happens next? Uh, is this just the beginning? Is it the first stage of an attack? Is this a, is Russia going to launch a nuclear warhead against us? What, what can happen next? We thought, and I think a lot of people felt the same way, that this coordinated terrorist attack was the first step of some larger larger attack against the United States. And luckily, we were all wrong. So if you look at the world in a a post-9-11 world, if you will, um, what is the legacy of 9-11 for us now? And especially maybe in in relation to what's what's taking place in Afghanistan 20 years later. Well, it looks like we've tossed away the legacy completely, that we've tossed away the lessons learned. Because what 9-11 did was sensitize people overnight, immediately, to the dangers of international terrorism. Before that, America had been attacked before. We've been attacked many times. We've been attacked in Iran in 1979 when they took our uh, diplomats hostage. We were attacked in Lebanon in 1983, attacks that I witnessed personally on the ground as a uh, reporter when that was still a reputable 
profession. Uh, we were attacked later, our forces in um, Saudi Arabia and Dahran, and we didn't think much of it. We didn't take it as, a, as an existential threat. We considered it as a nation the price of doing business, the, part, the price of being a global power. And 9-11 changed that completely and made people realize that we had to fight back at the sources of terrorism. And George W. Bush put it uh, very clearly. He said, if you are harboring a terrorist group that has attacked America, hand them over. You are either with us or against us. And that is specifically what led to the war in Afghanistan, was because the Taliban regime would not hand over al-Qaeda. And by the way, many of the same people who were in the Taliban regime in 2001 are back in the Taliban regime 2.0 in 2021. So this is really what distresses me the most, I think, about our disgraceful defeat in Afghanistan, but it was a defeat as well as a retreat, that we're now back to September 10th, 2001, and the guy in the White House doesn't seem to have a clue. Continuing to look at uh, and focus on Afghanistan, but as it relates to uh, Turkish Prime Minister Tayyip Erdogan, can you tell us he's had some interesting responses to the Taliban regaining control there in the region? Can you talk a little bit about that? I think what Erdogan is trying to do and has been trying to do for the past couple of weeks is to buy back a bit of credit with the United States. Uh, remember, U.S.-Turkish relations were pretty dramatically frayed over their actions with uh, terrorist groups around the world They're during the uh, coup d'etat in Turkey or the fake coup d'etat when they threatened to seize insulate air base by their refusal to uh, allow us to use Insulik in the war on terror, and most recently by the relationship uh, with Qatar, uh, Qatar in Libya, in particular in the Libyan civil war. So Erdogan, he was on the wrong side of the Arab Spring in 2010 when he offered Islamists uh, safe haven and offered to support them. Uh, he's been wrong in Libya. He's been wrong in Syria. And he's wrong now in Afghanistan. What he is hoping is that the fools who are now governing the United States of America will not have a sense of history and recognize that he is just currying for favor, trying to get us to forget the past and forget his real stripes. Erdogan is an Islamist and openly seeks to establish the world Islamic caliphate with himself at the head. Staying with uh, Iran and their their standing in the world stage, it's no secret that they want to become a nuclear power. And you have the Obama uh, Biden uh, when the Biden was the vice president, you had the deal that they struck there, which uh, probably didn't stop them and maybe even accelerated their growth. And now we're looking at their wanting to ease the sanctions and maybe even open up talks and 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 be less hard on Iran going forward. Can you talk a little bit about Iran's nuclear ambition and how urgent that situation is? Uh, the Iranian nuclear program is progressing very rapidly. This Just a few months ago, they announced publicly that they had enriched uranium to 60% using a new generation of uh, enrichment centrifuge. 60% is essentially weapons-grade material. And nobody did a thing. No one lifted a finger. They've been condemned by the International Atomic Energy Agency. There was a report out just two days ago from the IAEA, their latest inspection report, 
and they're sounding the alarm. The Iranians will not allow them to inspect military sites. They know that the Iranians continue to conduct uh, research and development activities to make a nuclear weapon of mass destruction at some of these facilities, and, and they cannot inspect them. So even the IAEA, which has been a pretty much of a toothless watchdog all along, even they are worried and are sounding the alarm. I'd like to kind of mention for, for a minute or two, if we have that time, Rick, uh, Ambassador Ron Dermer, Israel's uh, outgoing ambassador to the United States. I've known Ron. I met him first in Israel when Bibi Netanyahu came back to power in 2009. Uh, he gave a really extraordinary interview uh, a couple of days ago to an Israeli newspaper where he talks about Iran's nuclear ambitions, and he talks about the failure of the world to stop them. And he said what Iran wants to do is to become like North Korea. Uh, he said nobody wanted North Korea or Pakistan to get nuclear weapons, but it happens. Uh, Obama and Biden said that they would never allow nuclear weapons uh, in Iran, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen, and the only one to stop them is going to be Israel. And he said the Iranians want to turn Israel into South Korea and Tel Aviv into Seoul. They want to, this is a direct quote here. They want to surround us with a conventional ring of precision weapons and create a balance of terror so that any time someone fires a rocket from Gaza, Israel will think twice before responding. Now, this is really pretty dramatic and pretty important. Israel has done more under former uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu to bring attention to Iran's clandestine nuclear weapons activities than anyone in the world, more than the United States, more than the International Atomic Energy Agency. When they uh, discovered and published Iran's secret nuclear archive in 2018, it really astonished the world. It astonished the IAEA. They revealed uh, many uh, uh, clandestine weapon sites that the IAEA did not know about. Some of them they've tried to inspect since then. They have found uh, a, a, a enriched uranium at several of these sites. The Iranians won't tell them what was going on there. Uh, so Israel has really been out in front in trying to out, if you wish, in trying to expose Iran's secret, secret nuclear weapons activities. And uh, certainly with this new administration in the United States, um, Israel is getting the cold shoulder. Uh, Washington is no longer listening to them. And it's ironic because in his confirmation hearing in February, the current Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, said, uh, we're worried because Iran, uh, there are indications that Iran could uh, have nuclear weapons capability in a matter of weeks. That was back in February. Okay, that was in February. Uh, today, you don't hear them saying anything about it. All you hear from the U.S. administration is how much they want to make a deal with the Islamic terrorists running the great uh, country of Iran. Well, this is certainly alarming, and we appreciate you keeping our listeners informed. It feels like potentially our administration here in the United States is not near as concerned as they should be, but uh, our intentions are to keep you informed so you can make a decision yourself. Thank you so much for doing that for our listeners, and we will talk to you next week, Ken. Thanks so much, Rick. I appreciate it. God bless. Thank you, Ken. Ken's talking about those major players that are involved in Bible prophecy, and they're involved on the world scene today. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, David Dolan speaking to us about his recollection from 9-11, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend.
Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. As promised, we're going to our Mideast correspondent, David Dolan. Let's talk, Dave. Today is the anniversary of 9-11, and we've been asking each of our guests on the program today to talk to us about their personal recollections of 9-11, and then maybe to look at 9-11 from your particular sphere, like what's the legacy and what's the aftermath of 9-11? Well, Rick, actually, my recollection of uh, 9-11 20 years ago very much involves Israel. I was in Jerusalem at the time. I was walking to my travel agent's office, which is a block away from the prime minister's residence in the center of Jerusalem, and um, I uh, was about to leave the country on a short trip. And as I was approaching on the side street where the residence is, approaching that uh, location, Suddenly, the front door of the Prime Minister's gate opened, and out came five or six burly security guards, and two or three of them were carrying, like, bazooka rockets, like handheld uh, rockets. Now, you don't see that hardly ever. So, And they looked very, very serious, very dour, and they were looking all around, and I was the only one walking on the street. Well, I crossed over to the other side, away from the Prime Minister's residence, and uh, walked slowly and carefully, and I thought, something big is happening here. But I didn't ask them. And as I got into my travel agent's office, uh, she immediately said to me, the agent I work with, the World Trade Center in New York has been hit by an airplane. And I said, wow, wow. And they had the radio on. It was in Hebrew, but I do speak Hebrew, so I was listening. And uh, as we were discussing the trip and and, uh, that... Uh, one of her co-workers came in and said, 
they've just announced that a second plane has hit the World Trade Center. So, of course, at that time, at that moment, we all realized it was a attack, a deliberate attack, not an accident like they were speculating about at first. And then before I left that office to go back home, taking the same route back, um, we learned about the attack on the Pentagon. So clearly the U.S. was under assault, under attack. And as I went back, uh, knowing what had happened, I said in Hebrew, the guards were still out in front of the prime minister's residence, looking very serious. I said to them in Hebrew, uh, it looks like uh, we could be at war. And one of them shook his head up and down, nodding yes in agreement with that. And uh, we later found out, Rick, that Israel, when the first plane hit the World Trade Center, the Israeli government immediately ordered all security forces in the country on full war alert. They immediately decided to close off all incoming air traffic to Ben Gurion Airport, International Airport. They diverted planes away and didn't allow any to take off. This was before the United States had done similar measures. So they reacted immediately as if this was a terror attack and an act of war before the U.S. even realized it was that. Now, why? Because Israel, of course, is so used to this uh, phenomena of terrorism, um, very much so, of course. And, uh, in fact, in 2001, the second Palestinian uprising was raging uh, already for a year. So um, they took it very seriously. And then I went and stopped uh, at a nearby gym uh, that I was a member of that was owned and run by Russian Jews, and most of the guys that exercised there were Russian Israelis. And I did so not to exercise, but because I knew they had TVs and they would have coverage of this. So I stopped and looked at it. And as I did so, um, several of them started weeping. And I started weeping, and I thought, here I am, when America is attacked, uh, standing in Jerusalem with a group of Russians. Uh, they were Jews, Israelis, but Russian-born, Russian-speaking, and they're weeping for an attack on America. And well, when I was a child, of course, it was Russia, the Soviet Union, that we thought was going to attack us and cause great harm against us. So I thought of the irony of that, but it was very, very moving. And um, yeah, I'll never forget it. Of course, most people won't uh, forget where they were, what they were doing when that tragic and terrible attack took place. From your perspective as a, an Israeli political operative, the war on terror that, uh, that was waged and now with recent events in Afghanistan, what's your perspective if you could briefly, I know that's a complicated subject, but what's your perspective on the war on terror and the aftermath of 9-11 over the last 20 years? Well, Rick, I've written in several uh, articles uh, that I uh, think it's completely wrong to say that America's longest war has ended, and to even call the war in Afghanistan the longest war. It was just one element of a worldwide war that's been going on since before 9-11. We've got to remember that al-Qaeda tried to take down the World Trade Center in 1993. 
with a car bomb in the basement that did a lot of damage but didn't destroy the building at that time. They, of course, uh, attacked our embassies in Africa in two places and other terror groups in the late 90s. Uh, this has been going on uh, for a long time. We had the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Islamic fundamentalist leaders of a different branch of Islam, the Shiite wing, but nevertheless Muslim fundamentalists, who said, uh, what, we will destroy eventually the great Satan and the little Satan, Israel. Well, Israel considers that its wars going back to 1947-48 have been basically Islamic terror wars, and that terrorism is always a part of it, and um, that it's based on Islamic ideology, that there there cannot be a Jewish state where Jews, Jews rule over Muslims, that's according to their view of the Quran, and it does state that in several places in the Quran, so they're not uh, getting that out of thin air. So this is a much longer war, and really, as I said a couple weeks ago, it goes back to the time when the uh, descendants of Muhammad attacked Jerusalem just a few decades after his death and uh, took it over from Byzantine Christians. And then we had the Crusades, and the Muslims went into Spain and went into Central Europe all the way up to Vienna, and were beaten back. So this isn't a new war. It's a long war that goes back to the origins of Islam. It's based on Islamic uh, ideology and religious beliefs, and there are dozens of groups engaged in it all over the world. Afghanistan was just one location, and by the United States pulling completely out, it seems to be a defeat, not just a retreat, but a defeat. And that's the way the Islamic Muslim groups are viewing it. They're saying so out loud. And that's the way the Israelis basically are viewing it. And they believe and know that they have no option but to fight this war as long as there are Muslims, because the war will be waged. The jihad is very much in their hearts, the hearts of many of them anyway. And um, what can you do if your enemy comes up to attack you? You have to defend yourself. You can't just say, oh, I'm tired of this war. I'm going home. That's what the U.S. has tried to do, but it's not going to work out that way. Well, excellent insight, David. We move on from 9-11 and we go to present-day Israel. In our previous segment, we talked with Ken Timmerman about... Uh, Iran potentially gaining access or or building their own nuclear weapon and becoming a nuclear power. I'm just asking you, in your area of expertise there in Israel and Israeli politics, what potentially would be the Israeli response? Would there be a preemptive response to that? or, Or how is that being viewed right now in Israel? Well, Rick, we've been talking about the shadow war for some years now, and really Israel and Iran are at war. It's just not a full declared war, but uh, we've had, what, how many dozens of strikes by Israel against Iranian facilities and targets in Syria and Lebanon? Why are they there? Because they want a war against Israel, and they're building up their forces, they're supporting Hamas and all of this. So the war is ongoing. There's been incidents at sea. We've talked about that. Even last week we did. And um, uh, that's going on. Then cyber action against Iran's nuclear program, believed to involve Israel over the past few years, a number of those sorts of strikes. And then strikes against Israeli water positions and other things by Iran. So there is a war going on. But in terms of a full uh, strike on the program, 
It may come to that. Israel's reluctant to do that. The nuclear program of Iran is spread out all over the country. A lot of it is hardened. It's underground. They don't even know all the locations for sure. So it would be very difficult to destroy their nuclear program in that sort of a way. But it may come to that. Uh, the new uh, Israeli leader Bennett has said what Netanyahu and all of them have said. We will not, we cannot allow Iran to develop a nuclear weapon, given that they are saying every other day, we're going to wipe out Tel Aviv, we're going to wipe out Haifa and destroy the Jewish state. So obviously they have no choice but to not only monitor it very closely, but to take whatever action they have to take, and that may be a full strike at some point. Well, David, we thank you so much for being our correspondent there in this news and for keeping our listeners informed. We appreciate all that you do, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. I'm glad to do it, Rick, and God bless. We've got to take a break, but when we return, Winky Madad and Rob Congdon, two old friends of the ministry right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy D. Young Jr. And as promised, we do have Winky Madad coming up and an old friend, Rob Congdon who's been with the program, who for many years looked at the European Union for us until John Rood stepped in. This weekend, Rob's going to be rejoining us this weekend as we take a look back over the years since 9-11. This is the 9-11 weekend, and we want to remember. And I'm I'm just trying to think uh, over the years with uh, doing the program with my father, when you look at both of our trajectory, uh, our our journey, really, in the Mideast, we both started off in, in uh, broadcasting and journalism. 1984, I was in Israel working with a friend of my father's, uh, Morty Delinsky. Morty was the former head of the government press office. And for many years, I uh, worked there producing a show that aired live from Israel back into New York City. My father in 1991 went to Israel uh, three days before the Gulf War, the first Gulf War started, and dad was really placed on the front row, so to speak, and he would have told you this also, of really understanding and watching Bible prophecy unfold. Uh, Little did we know years later, and and we were involved in doing tours in the Mideast, that was one of the things that we were working with, not only doing tours, but on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, reporting from the Mideast of what was happening uh, in our understanding of looking at Bible prophecy, understanding what was taking place. I remember going up and leading up into the year 2000, 
And dad happened to be home during 9-11 that year. I was uh, newly married, living in San Antonio, Texas. My wife worked for a congressman at the time. And um, I remember waking up that morning after dropping the kids off at school. My wife called me and said, uh, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And on the way home, I thought that was odd because we had lived and worked and had a radio station in New York City for almost six years. So we knew New York City pretty well. And that's just something that rarely ever would take place. And so immediately having been involved in the Mideast for many years, um, working, touring, doing journalistic work, working uh, during wartime situations with uh, the first Israeli-Lebanon conflict, I knew that immediately something was taking place. Sure enough, as I got home, just like everybody else turning on the TV, we saw the second plane hit the towers. I called my father immediately. Uh, He was uh, doing a uh, Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Georgia, and he was getting ready to go speak. I remember calling him on the phone and telling him that a plane, two planes had hit the World Trade Center and had told him to turn on the news. And he said, son, quit playing around with me. Uh, You know, uh, this is not something you play around with. He turned on the TV and he knew immediately that our world had changed. And uh, his role as a prophecy teacher and our role as a ministry of helping people to understand Bible prophecy had changed also. And we were now helping people and uh, understanding uh, in the 20 years in the aftermath of 9-11 of what's taking place, of seeing the nations that are aligning up, that are fitting into Bible prophecy. That's the legacy that we have as a ministry as we carry on and as we are understanding what's taking place, helping the body of Christ to understand God's using all of these pieces, all the pieces of the Basically, all the props are on the stage and the curtain's about ready to go up. So as we study and look and help you to understand what's taking place, it is there so that you might know how to live during these times. We have Winky Madad standing by with Rick. Rick, take it away. Thank you, Jimmy. I have with us today a good friend of ours, a good friend of the program's, Israel Madad. Israel Madad is the former mayor of Shiloh and is an expert on all things Israel and Israeli politics and Israeli religion. And it's, he's a good friend. In fact, uh, we call him by his nickname most of the time, Winky. Winky, how are you doing? Fine. I'm doing okay. Thanks a lot. Hope everything is okay on your end. It is. Thank you so much. Getting right into it, uh, this program is airing on September 11th. Of course, we have the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. And my question to you, we wanted to kind of reflect on that a little bit, and we wanted to look back at the actual event when it took place. How was it viewed in Israel? And I'm sure everybody remembers where they were on 9-11. So if you could tell us uh, how that event was viewed in Israel, and then maybe after that, just let us know what's the legacy of 9-11 there in Israel. Well, I'm old enough to remember my first, I'll always remember where I was moment, uh, which of course was the assassination of President Kennedy. I can tell you I was on the way back from the library. And this, of course, 9-11 was the second 
for me, probably maybe the first for the generation of many people listening in, that they will never forget. And they'll never forget because it, I think it was at least two or three levels of, of burning into your consciousness. The first was, of course, how did this happen? How could it happen? What, why did not people think it was impossible? Uh, which, of course, goes to many of the things that uh, I've been discussing with all members of your family over the past uh, 30 years, maybe, in terms of if you don't know what's going on in the world, you might not know what's going to go on at home. There's no such thing anymore as complete dislocation or disconnection with events around the world. The second, of course, was was the American people and the American government institutions able to counter and deal with what was underlying the threat of an ideological core group of people based on religion who sought to do so much damage. And perhaps the third was, did we do the operation over the past 20 years correctly? Did we counter? Did we respond? Did we uh, eradicate the danger? Or, as the events in Afghanistan uh, perhaps point to, uh, we're still not exactly the strongest nation on earth, as I would speak as an American. And there is, of course, a great lesson for that. Uh, if you were to look at it, and I, I guess going to push a little bit further, following up on that question, um, we, in the last few years, we've completely removed ourselves from Iraq. We've now completely removed ourselves from Afghanistan. Uh, what does that mean for the future of uh, kind of the vigilance that we had after 9-11? Uh, do we still have that same vigilance? Is there still that same urgency? Uh, uh, you know, that's one of the questions that you always have to answer. I'll let you know if nothing happens, if we are. Uh, we don't know how much we were successful, uh, and I'm talking about the free world, and many other, of course, allies of the United States that were involved in Afghanistan and even in Iraq, uh, in doing the, the proper security elements that would allow America and other countries to leave a war zone. Uh, in World War II, we had unconditional surrender by Germany and, uh, and Japan. And we had... I'm going to use a word that I don't really like, occupation. We had American forces, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, we still have American forces in Germany and other places uh, because we want to be up front and not far away back at home sitting around a table and wondering what, what's flying into the tower down the street. Uh, have we done things correctly with Afghanistan and Iraq? And that's the question that has to be asked. America can do a lot with the military strength that it has, but there are other things involved in making sure that places are peaceful. Are ideologies changed? Are intelligence services in place? Uh, have democratic institutions been uh, uh, erected? And are they governing well? Uh, these are things that America cannot... Uh, disallow itself from getting involved in, and I hope that also reflects on things that are closer to my neighborhood 
in terms of what's going on uh, in the region and with our neighbors either across the street by me, uh, when the street is about a mile wide, uh, to other places here. Well, we move on from that to you recently celebrated Rosh Hashanah. And Shana Tova, I think I'm a little late on that, but uh, uh, happy uh, or happy High Holy Days, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, is that correct? You are correct. Yes, we are now in a period of um, what we call ten days of penitence. We have a two. We just had a two day holiday, which basically means the the, hap- the new year. Uh, the start of a, a new Hebrew year, uh, 5782, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, according to our calendar. Uh, okay. And uh, it ends with the Yom Kippur Fest. And for us, uh, unlike many other people's, Happy New Year does not mean a party uh, or drinks or other, uh, uh, if I may say, frivolous uh, interactions, uh, but of uh, a time of reflection, a time of saying, okay, we finished the year, uh, we don't make resolutions, but we actually ask for forgiveness. We say that we reflect on what we did, did it meet up to, with the standards of, of what our religion, and I think many other people of mankind across the world, would consider good and not bad, uh, worthy and not uh, a disservice. And so uh, we finished the first two days, many hours in synagogue, I can tell you. Uh, and then uh, next Wednesday, Tuesday night, Wednesday, will be a 25-hour fast uh, that will uh, finish off this period of penitence. And we hope that uh, reinforced and reinvigorated, uh, we will set out and do good things only during the next coming year. Very, very nice. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the shofar blowing? I think during the, the during this time, the, there's a lot of shofar blowing. The cleaned out ram's horn that is blown as as the trumpet sound. Well, actually, uh, Rosh Hashanah as a holiday is is not quite mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned as the day of remembrance and blowing the shofar. Uh, as we're always reminded. Uh, when Isaac was bound up in the altar and God stayed the hand of Abraham, a uh, a um, lamb or a uh, sheep, I'm, I'm not quite sure the English term as it's been translated, was, was found in a thicket and replaced. And uh, the symbolism of that is that we go all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish people with Abraham and Isaac and say, if you want to call out, if you want to wake up people, if you want to even, quote-unquote, wake up God and say, I'm here and I'm ready, use the ram's horn. It's also been used throughout the history in other instances, in the temple service. We have it, trumpets are blown, and even during war, to, to, to rouse the people up. So for the Jewish people, the ram's horn, or as you said properly in Hebrew, the shofar, is 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 multidisciplinal, and uh, it serves a good purpose in making sure we're on the right path. Just uh, we're always in, in our in our holidays here in the United States. We're always excited about our 
the food we eat, the traditional foods we eat on the holidays. What are the hol- what are the foods that you eat during the Rosh Hashanah time? Well, one cute custom, if I can say, is when we sit down after coming home from synagogue on the first eve of the uh, festival, we have uh, new fruits or uh, various vegetables uh, that are used to remind us uh, of of uh, of uh, of a sweet new year. For example, uh, uh, an apple dipped in honey, or uh, dates, or raisins, and each one is is held up and said, "Well, let's see what we could do with this." Uh, the play on words in the Hebrew. Um, if you're Ashkenazi, which means European descent, you've got your gefilte fish, uh, um, which I think many non-Jews would find very difficult to understand. Uh, and then we have uh, dumplings in the soup. Uh, and one of my favorites, is uh, it's called in Yiddish, simis. It's made up of raisins, uh, prunes, dates, and... Uh, Sweet potato, it's sort of like a, a bit of a stew type of a thing, but it's very, very sweet. Honey is used all the time with the bread instead of salt. So uh, these are the various things that sort of highlight the holiday uh, for us and the children, and at my age, the grandchildren. <laughs> That's wonderful. You know, that just adds a little flavor to your description of Rosh Hashanah, which is great. Well, my final question, Winky, is... If we look at the, this is the Jewish New Year, and for many of us here, the last few years have been rather difficult with the, with the, with the pandemic and, and so many things going on. If you could, just as, as, as Israel is looking at the Jewish New Year, what is the outlook for the future? I know this is, um, this would be the first, I was in Israel the last time was in 20, early 2020, uh, February of 2020. I left in March. Um, we've had to cancel several tours, so we haven't been back. So we have, we, you know, we typically are there um, so frequently, but right now it's just so much isolation due to the, to the COVID. Can you just tell me what's the outlook right now um, in Israel as you, as you enter into this new year? Well, <clears throat> it's difficult to gauge because we're just at the edge, I hope, of getting more control over the way the disease is transmitted in terms of social distancing and and lockdown and finding the proper balance. Uh, These are, of course, all scientific things. Uh, I'm already on a third booster uh, vaccination. Uh, I still wear a mask. I do not take chances. I do not go to mass um, congregating uh, issues in synagogue, for example. We just discussed the synagogue. We sit one or two seats apart in the synagogue and up to about 50 people or more, maybe 60 at tops. Uh, children are not allowed in. They're in a separate room. So uh, on the one hand, uh, we try to deal with this scientifically, rationally, but on the other hand, we also know that if we don't have faith, if we don't have communal responsibility, which comes from being uh, understood as we're all one people, 
Uh, we will not get over this uh, except in maybe a few more years. Hopefully, this is the last year we'll be, we will be needing to have all these restrictions. How it goes with the rest of the world? Can we continue to travel? Can you continue to travel to us? It's all a question which all, of course, comes back to prophecy. If you believe in God, if you believe in His message, you know that it's not all in our hands, but He gives us the responsibility of assuming as much as possible in human endeavor. And this is the proper relationship between us and God and as, as a people uh, moving on together in this world. Well, as always, Winky, you have wonderful insight, and we thank you so much for being with us, uh, contributing to our listeners' knowledge. So thank you so much for all that you do, and we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very, very much. And, of course, regards to you, the family, and all our listeners, thank you for having me on. Well, I do have the privilege of welcoming back a good friend of the Prophecy Today radio broadcast, Rob Congdon. He is an expert on what takes place in the European Union and what's going on in that part of the world, and a Bible scholar himself. Rob, how are you doing? Well, very good. It's it's good to be with you, although uh, I, like many, I'm still saddened about your father's home going. Happy for him, but sad for all of you at the ministry there. Well, thank you so much for those kind words, and uh, as are we, for sure, as are we. Our first question, and we've been asking this of all of our broadcast partners today, is to talk about, from your particular perspective, the events that took place 20 years ago from today, the 9-11 attacks. Do you have personal recollections there, and what did that mean, kind of the legacy, the aftermath, especially as, as it's related to Afghanistan and what's taking place now in the war on terror? Well, yes, I certainly have real memories. We were living in Scotland at the time, and so actually we got kind of a whole different perspective that I didn't realize until I, you know, came back to the United States. Um, the the perspective we had is we got the phone call, we watched the events on our television live just like everyone else, and wasn't quite sure where it was all headed the difference that I found and have still kind of found remarkable is in Britain, uh, there wasn't the same kind of reaction that there was in the United States. I think in the, we all had the question of what was going to happen. And as uh, having all our family members back in the States, I was concerned at the, the distance and the feeling that there was no way we could connect with our family. And that was our probably the biggest strain in the whole thing. But interestingly, the Europeans did not take it as such a significant event, if I can say, in terms of thinking, applying it to their own lives. And so what we found is only among some fellow Americans did we have that same sense of we've got to pull together and where is this leading our nation. So it was uh, certainly a different feeling, I think, than most people in the United States experienced. It's certainly been interesting to see everybody's unique perspectives on what happened and the events of those days from all over the world. But in general, if you look at over the last 20 years, and especially coming from the European Union and the perspective now of how they're dealing with the events in Afghanistan and the the quote-unquote end on the war on terror, what is the legacy of 9-11 in the modern world? Well... I think the legacy, at least from my perspective and my analysis, is that it has a 
greater effect here on the United States and the people here in our country than it does in the Europeans. Uh, the Europeans see it as a great opportunity to bring in more people, to bring closer ties to the Middle East and to some of the nations that uh, they felt a little pressured to be distanced from, largely because of the influence from the United States. Uh, for we here in the United States, I think we see it as the, it reinforces, brings back all those memories of 20 years ago, and we're wondering, is that going to lead to further problems right here in our own country? I think we sense a greater danger from it, immediate danger from it, than the Europeans. And I think biblically, from a prophetic standpoint, that's almost what I would expect. And uh, I have told many people as I've been analyzing it. Start to look at the European Union area, and one of the main subjects of interest right now is the elections in Germany and the anticipated leftward swing of the German policy. What can you tell us about that? Well, we always have to remember that Germany has a parliament, and therefore the election of, what well, using our American terms of congressmen, determines who will become the prime minister. And so while the prime minister doesn't run directly for votes, he is the result of the winning party. Uh, nobody right now who is in this running for this election party-wise that will be in the end of September on the 26th uh, no one party will really have a majority and can easily say who will be their prime minister. So what could well come is a coalition of a couple parties to get enough votes, if you will, to be able to have their own prime minister. As I look at each of the candidates, the one that is sort of a, uh, a shadow of uh, Angela Merkel, the current chancellor, uh, probably could come out of this the strongest and have, be in the best position. But when we look at them from a European standpoint, I've seen several articles saying, what will this do to the EU? Will it weaken it? Uh, we need to remember two things. Germany is the driving force. It's the driving engine of the European Union. So no matter which politician becomes prime minister, there's still going to be an ongoing support of the European Union. Uh, the German thinking is that of the founders of the European Union. So they're going to set, keep it on the same course. One might push it faster than another, but uh, I, I don't see a dramatic change toward the EU. The big issues for them right now is bringing people into the country, growing the European Union, and maybe adding a few more nations in the Balkans soon. And then the other part that concerns them is a couple of what they see as rebellious members of the European Union, such as Hungary and um, Poland, and trying to figure out how do they get them in control. So I, I personally think the German election um, isn't going to be as, you know, a stark change from what we've been seeing from Germany up to this point. You just mentioned Hungary, and they were in the news as well. Uh, the Pope shortened his visit there, which seemed to be an intentional swipe at the the nationalist and anti-immigrant uh, Prime Minister Orban, or at least that's how it's viewed. What's your take on that situation there? Well, that again is, is almost expected. Um, Orban is a certainly strong nationalist leader for Hungary. He wants Hungary first. And as you can imagine, that goes totally against opinion, which sees no individual nations is just one united government that they hope one day will be a global government. And so 
he is a, a real thorn in their side, if you will. Uh, he has resisted uh, immigration. Uh, he is a supporter of walls in the European Union to protect the Union. So he, he is going against the European Union government. And as I've said many times, and I've written about in my book, you will always find at the heart of the European Union are leaders who are Roman Catholic connected. Um, they're not what we would think of as these religious people. They are people who almost in a truly political sense are united with the Roman Catholic Church. So you could imagine that the Pope is not going to give Oban of Hungary a great deal of attention that would suggest support of him or his ideas. So, yes, I think in some ways it is a slap at Oban and the Hungarians because they've supported this President Oban. And um, so uh, it's not a surprising event. Um, it will be interesting to see how it is handled by both sides. But again, uh, really the Pope is reflecting the European Union's view of Oban and Hungary as a rebellious nation that needs to be, like a child, that needs to be disciplined and brought back to line. Well, Rob, thank you so much for your unique knowledge and your unique insight into all these situations. We appreciate you keeping our listeners informed, and we look forward to having you on again soon. Well, it's a privilege to be still on here. I miss Jimmy, but it's a privilege to be on and hope to talk to you in the future and be with you. Lord bless you. We're going to have to take a break, and when we return, David James, of course, will be here, and Steve Herzig talking about Rosh Hashanah and the Feast of Trumpets, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. And yes, this is a program where we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. It's a special program that my brother Rick and I are doing today on 9-11. This is the 9-11 weekend, and we're focusing on with each one of our radio partners that have been with us for many years, uh, not none of these have really have been with us for the 20 years because we started this program all the way back in 2000. In fact, it was just uh, a few months before 9-11 took place that this program had started. It was a vision that my father had. He took it and uh, presented it as a ministry. At that time in their lives, my mom and dad were missionaries and they were working in the land of Israel. Uh, they were uh, helping a group of believers in Israel start a church. Uh, friends of mine that I had when I was there, later on they they came back. But uh, Dad uh, went to Israel, as I said, before uh, three days before the Gulf War started in 1991. He had a vision to do a weekly program and presented it as a ministry to a church in Bermuda. That church uh, decided to to raise the funds for a studio for the for the necessary equipment. Well, we were there and working along with him over the years. Uh, again, when nine eleven took place, he was uh, starting to tell people and help people to understand where we were on God's timetable. And that's it, it really that's what Bible prophecy is all about: using God's word to help you to understand. Uh, the times in which you're living, wh why the world is acting as it is, to have a worldview, a biblical worldview, and that's where this program started. 
Again, I want to thank you for praying for me. I want to thank our radio partners for helping and standing by our ministry, for uh, those that follow our ministry, and our Prophecy Today weekend family. As you stand by us and you watch, uh, help us to continue on that straight and narrow, to continue the ministry that my father had started. We are committed to doing that. One of these days, I'll share with you my battle with COVID uh, that had me eight days in intensive care, which I just uh, basically just got out of. So I am really great to be back with y'all. And and, uh, our next interview with Rick and Dave is right now. Thank you so much, Jimmy, and good to have you back. Now is the time on the program, as you said, where we talk to our good friend, Dave James. Uh, Dave James talks to us about current theological trends and and different issues in the news and in the media and in our world today. But since today is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, I've been asking our other broadcast partners about their experience and memories of that day, and I'm guessing that you also remember 9-11 quite well. Well, you're right, Rick. Uh, I do remember it very well. Uh, As uh, you may recall, we had been missionaries with Word of Life, and uh, we had been in Hungary for almost nine years when 9-11 happened. And Hungary is six hours ahead of Eastern Time, and so the first plane hit the North Tower at uh, 2.46 p.m. Central European Time. And uh, I was at my desk and had been on the Internet a lot that day because earlier that morning we had been able to move uh, from dial-up Internet to a dedicated line, uh, which was much slower than anything today, but a lot faster than dial-up back in the day. And uh, I remember I was interacting on, on a forum when someone said that a plane had hit a building in New York City, and, of course, the first thought was that it was just a small private plane like it happened in Florida a few weeks earlier. Uh, so I then tried to do an Internet search for information, but the whole Internet had slowed down to a crawl, and I couldn't get to any news outlets. And after maybe a half hour, I was able to find a bit of information. So I called home and told my wife to turn on the TV where we could get Sky News out of Great Britain. Uh, I then left the office and went home and watched everything and, and watched everything unfold over the next few hours. And it was just horrific uh, and heartbreaking. And, and honestly, we just wanted to cry. And like everyone else, we didn't know what would happen next. We didn't know if it would trigger World War III or if Americans overseas would be targeted or if we would need to return to the States. Uh, and we were very concerned. And then a couple of weeks later, the mayor of our village put together a meeting in the cultural center so that the Hungarians could show their support and express their condolences to the American missionaries there. So that was a special time in that way. Certainly a day none of us will ever forget. Well, on to today's subject, and one of the major news stories we've been following is the new Texas abortion law that went into effect last week, and it has certainly been causing quite a stir among politicians in the mainstream media as well, and on social media. Well, that's right. Uh, Back on May 19th, the Texas Tribune ran an article with a headline, Governor Greg Abbott signs into law one of the nation's strictest abortion measures, banning procedure as early as six weeks into a pregnancy. And the article went on to say, uh, Governor Greg Abbott signed into law Wednesday a measure that would prohibit uh, in Texas abortions as early as six weeks. 
before some women know they are pregnant and open the door for almost any private citizen to sue abortion providers and others. So, Rick, the the signing of the bill opens really a new frontier in the battle over abortion restrictions as the first of its kind uh, legal provisions uh, are intended to make the law harder to block, and they're poised to be tested in the courts. and the law went into effect uh, on Wednesday, uh, making Texas the most restrictive state in the nation regarding access to abortion services. And other states have passed similar laws, but they were legally challenged. And so the Texas law is the first to actually be implemented. And just before midnight on Wednesday, the Supreme Court refused to block the law with a 5-4 to four vote. And a New York Times article stated that because of the way the law was written, it may be difficult to challenge in court, representing a sea change in the battle over abortion rights and inviting imitation by other jurisdictions seeking to tamp down access to abortion. I know you've researched this quite a bit, so could you share with us some of the specifics about the language of the Texas bill so we can get a feel for what that has those on the left up in arms? Right. So this is Texas Senate Bill 8, and the title of the bill is Relating to Abortion, Including Abortions After Detection of an Unborn Child's Heartbeat, Authorizing a Private Civil Right of Action. And it's a partisan bill uh, passed by the Republicans with a vote of 90 to 1. And the bill starts this way. Section 1, this act shall be known as the Texas Heartbeat Act. And I'm sure Section 2 is going to be at the heart of any related judicial decisions because it states this. The legislature finds that the state of Texas never repealed, either expressly or by implication, the state statutes enacted before the ruling in Roe v. Wade, 1973, that prohibit and criminalize abortion unless the mother's life is in danger. So, uh, Rick, this uh, bill is clearly trying to capitalize on the divide between federal jurisdiction and states' rights. And later in the bill, we read this amendment, uh, we read this as an, an amendment to an existing health and safety code. The legislature finds, according to contemporary medical research, that one, a fetal heartbeat has become a key medical predictor that an unborn child will reach live birth. Two, cardiac activity begins at a biologically identifiable moment in time, normally when the fetal heart is formed in the gestational sac. And three, Texas has compelling interest from the outset of a woman's pregnancy in protecting the health of the woman and the life of the unborn child. Sounds like this Texas law is going to be challenged by the federal government in court. What can you tell us about that? Well, it definitely is. Uh, On Thursday, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, gave a public address uh, in which he laid out plans by the DOJ to try to intervene. And after that, uh, USA Today reported it, it this way. The Justice Department is suing the state of Texas in an attempt to block the enforcement of a strict abortion law decried by the Biden administration as an untenable denial of reproductive health care for women. And the article went on to quote Garland as saying, the Texas Act is clearly unconstitutional under longstanding Supreme Court precedent, and 
this scheme to nullify the Constitution is one that all Americans, whatever their politics, should fear. And then Garland also stated that the civil action being taken by the U.S. government seeks a permanent injunction designed to keep Texas from enforcing the law by claiming that the law is invalid and preempted by federal law. So, Rick, obviously politicians on the left and abortion rights activists, are they're concerned that there's going to be a snowball effect with other states who have attempted something like this in the past and see this as an opportunity. So, on the one hand, the deputy director of the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project said this, the first step by the Department of Justice is critical to righting this injustice for the people of Texas and to prevent this catastrophe from playing out in other states. On the other hand, Rick, the, the president of the anti-abortion Susan B. Anthony list stated this, the Texas Heartbeat Act is a response to 50 years of Supreme Court interference in states' legitimate interest in protecting life and their right to debate and pass laws reflecting their people's values. So, Rick, this is uh, just starting to really heat up, and it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in the coming weeks and months. As we wrap up our discussion for today, how do you develop a biblical case against abortion that someone could think about for themselves if they're undecided or that they can use when discussing this with someone who is pro-abortion? Well, Rick, really the bottom line question is this, whether it comes talking about biology or we're talking about law and we're talking about morality and ethics, the bottom line question is when does life begin? And if life begins in the womb, if life begins at conception, then abortion is murder. There's no way around it. Uh, furthermore, biologically, uh, life doesn't begin at some arbitrary time between conception and birth, uh, as sort of suggested by the, the six-week heartbeat bills, but they're just trying to push back closer to conception, so I understand the strategy. Uh, and, and also, you know, the unborn baby isn't like an appendix that's part of the mother's body with her DNA. The baby has its own distinct and unique DNA from conception. And so moving to the Bible, the Bible makes it clear that an unborn child is a person. For example, when Job was lamenting his plight, he said in chapter 3, or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? So he's referring to an unborn baby as a child, and of course a child is a person. Uh, in Genesis chapter 25, uh, we read that Jacob and Esau struggled as children within Rebekah's womb. That's the way the text describes them. Uh, in Exodus chapter 21, as part of the law, uh, in verses 22 through 25 of that chapter, state that someone was guilty of murder if they caused a miscarriage uh, such that the baby would die. They, In fact, they would be put to death as a murderer under the law. Now, of course, we're not under the law now, but it tells us what God's view is of this matter. Uh, in Psalm 139, King David wrote this, for you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, marvelous are your works, and that my, and that my soul knows very well. Then think about this, in Luke chapter 1, when Mary goes to see Elizabeth when both are pregnant, 
Elizabeth says she felt her baby leap in her womb, and the Greek word that she uses of her unborn child is the same Greek word that's used of Jesus after he is born, uh, as described in Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 12. So if we think of the Incarnation, we must ask the question, at what point God took on human flesh? And it could have only been at the moment that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she conceived uh, our Lord and Savior. So clearly, life begins at conception, and if life begins at conception, then abortion is murder. And murder is against not only uh, the United States law, it's against God's law. Well, David, thank you for uh, bringing us up to date on this subject, and thank you for all the work and all the research you endeavor to keep our listeners informed. We appreciate that, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. Uh, Thanks so much, Rick. Uh, Always look forward to our discussions. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, Steve Herzig will be talking about Rosh Hashanah right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with my brother Rick. We have on the line with us today Steve Herzig. Everybody that knows our ministry when it comes around the Jewish holidays, we speak to Steve Herzig from Friends of Israel about what's taking place and uh, to explain the Jewish holiday that is either coming up or just passed. Steve, before we get started on Rosh Hashanah, can you tell us what it meant to your family? Oh, that's a great question. Rosh Hashanah is one of the high holidays, as Jewish people will call it. It's a very important day. Uh, it's the beginning of the fall feast 
falls in the month of Tishrei, which is September, October. This year, all three holidays are in September. And Rosh Hashanah is the kind of uh, holiday that uh, you have to have a special meal, uh, which we always had. The family gets together. I recall with great joy going to synagogue with my dad. I come from a Orthodox background, which meant that the men sat in one side of the synagogue and the women sat in another. There was a dividing wall. Uh, and so that was meaningful to me because I was with my father. I'm the only, I was his only son. We had two sisters. And so the idea of this day is repentance. And you have to think about your sins over the past year and trying to make things right. So we not only confess to God, uh, there's actually a liturgy for the sins which I have sinned before thee, and then we list them. Uh, and, but you also want to repent to people, uh, things you have said, ways you have wronged them. And so for me, it's, it's a special time. Apples and honey are eaten. We greet each other with Lashana Tova, which means a happy year, uh, a blessed year. It's the idea of we know that in 10 days Yom Kippur is coming, and uh, you're going to be sealed in the Book of Life or in the Book of Judgment, so you have 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and then. So my memories are it's a solemn time. The Bible talks about it in the Book of Leviticus uh, as a Sabbath day, which means it's a holy day. It's a day of no work. It's a day of uh, time spent with family and with God. And after all, that's a wonderful thing, and it was for me growing up. Now, from your perspective as a Christian, and if you were to look at that, how are Christians to relate to Rosh Hashanah? You know, there is an easy segue, at least from a Jewish point of view, to Christianity, and that is this. The Feast of Trumpets, which it's also called, Head of the Year, Rosh Hashanah means Head of the Year, the Feast of Trumpets is the ho- one of the names of the holiday in the Bible in Leviticus 23. And the uh, Christians, we go to church, and depending on the, the denomination or the independent church that it might be, how often they celebrate communion. But when we go into communion or breaking of bread or Eucharist, whatever it's called, uh, the Bible says in Second Corinthians, it says that we are to examine ourselves to see if we're in the household of faith. Paul's writing to Christians there. Well, that's concept is a Jewish concept that takes place at Rosh Hashanah, where we examine ourselves, we examine our life, we find out where we've been short of what God expects us, and we confess it. We confess it before God, we confess it before man. And so for me, the transition from Rosh Hashanah, from a Jewish point of view, is natural to a Christian point of view, because There's nothing we can do on our own. Judaism teaches we can, we can do mitzvot, good deeds. But once you read the the scripture, the Older Testament text is very clear, uh, and certainly the New Testament, that there's nothing we can do in the flesh. No amount of work is going to get us to be holy. Only the Messiah, the Savior, can make us holy. But Rosh Hashanah teaches me that, hey, I have to have a contrite heart. I have to examine myself. And it's a contrast between an unholy person that I am and how holy God is and how grateful I am that God redeemed me through Jesus Christ. There's a passage in Genesis 22 called the Akita, which is a binding in Hebrew, 
uh, in which Abraham takes his son and offers him up as an offering. Genesis 22, for the Christian, is such a vivid picture of God uh, taking, willing to offer his son, and his son, Jesus, being willing to suffer and die. In Genesis 22, Isaac asked his dad as they're journeying to Mount Moriah, he said, Dad, I have the fire, I have the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, oh, uh, the Lord himself will be the sacrifice, my son. And so you have the willing son, the obedient son. You have the father who loves his son, uh, his only son. Uh, and in the eyes of God, Abraham's son Isaac was his only son. He was willing to offer him, but he didn't, a ram caught in a thicket. But for us, we see the picture, the great gospel message, where a loving God is offering his son, the second person in the Godhead, who incarnated on the earth, lived, breathed, lived a human life as 100% God, 100% man, and then was willing to suffer and die for us. It's a great picture, I think, and a great transition for us as believers. Well, if you look at it, we as Christians don't observe the Jewish feast, but we have an application that we can take from them. And the, the, the Feast of the Trumpets, the shofar, the call to action that's blown repeatedly throughout this period, it's a call to action for the Jewish people. But if we were to take that alert, that urgency that that is tended to create, and we were to translate that to Christians, what would be that call to action for us as Christians today? Well, we know that, as you described, the shofar being a call. It's a, it's a call. It's a reminder. It's a call back. It could be if Jews that were outside of the wall, safety behind the wall, they blew the shofar. Joshua blew the, had the shofar blown, and the, and the stones came tumbling down that wall. The shofar is a call. And as Christians, we wait for a trumpet blast. We really do. And that trumpet blast is described in First Thessalonians knowing that at any moment God can call his church to be with himself, it is a reminder, a call to action. The time is late. It is great. The need is great. We need to be about the Father's business, which is to communicate biblical truth, communicate the gospel message, which is exactly what your radio program is doing on a weekly basis and what the whole D. Young family uh, has wanted to do and continues to want to do, uh, which is a, a wonderful blessing so that people can grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and also communicate the gospel wherever they can. I think that trumpet call is a great reminder for us as believers that it's getting close to the midnight hour. Amen. Thank you for that exhortation, and thank you for joining us today, Steve. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Hey, thanks a lot. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.